Joining me now is uh, our music director for the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, Leonard Slatkin. And, uh, boy, you've got another season starting up this weekend. Uh, but before we get into some of those details, you, you've had a, a pretty good summer. I had an excellent summer, Chris. It was lighter than usual. Uh, a part of that's a sort of planned cutback on my part. After I left Detroit to finish the season here, I flew over to my other orchestra in Lyon. We rehearsed for a few days, and then I went to Japan for three weeks. But the first week was primarily vacation, so I went up to the northern part, the Hokkaido uh, district, which is where Sapporo is. You remember the Winter Olympics from there. You haven't lived until you've seen a ski jump with no snow on it. (laughs) And there are people who actually try. They have a little competition of, Jumping without you're going snowing? down it. Yes. Oh, okay. Really, there are a lot of funerals that day. Oh my! Uh, but it's beautiful. It's very quaint villages. I loved it. And then we did a, I think it was a six or seven concert tour of different parts of Japan. And then the remainder of the summer was spent in Santa Fe, New Mexico, working at the Santa Fe Opera, giving. After 60 years in existence, the first performance in Santa Fe of Samuel Barber's Vanessa. And it was a real treat. We had a wonderful production, great cast. Uh, it was a wonderful place. And I got most of my second book finished. It, I finished it up here, actually, a few weeks ago. Now we're editing and doing all that stuff. So it'll take a little while and probably come out in about eight or nine months. What's, what's it called? Behind the Baton. Ah, your first book, uh, Conducting Business, was, was just a delight and Thank full you. of uh, uh, great stories. And uh, a nice surprise in that book, anyway, was uh, the last bit of it was tips for conducting. Uh, yes. Serious tips, not, you know, not just way oh, no, to the this stick, one. This one has tips for composers. For composers? Yes. Wow. <laughs> so, When's it coming out? Uh, well, we're not sure exactly. I would think if I was a publishing house and timing it, I would try to coordinate it with perhaps the start of next season so that uh, it's available to the different orchestras I'll be going to and do book signings and yeah. all those kind of things. Uh, well, the life of the author. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, you also had a chance to, uh, over the summer, hook up with your brother, Fred. I did. My brother, who was the principal cellist of the New York City Ballet and was here last year for the premiere of Kina, uh, loves to go to Las Vegas. Not so much for the gambling. He just likes the city. And uh, he does. He discovers these great places to go to. He went to the Mobster Museum, <laughs> which is really fantastic. Then there's another place that has like 500 old pinball machines working. Oh, my. It's incredible. And then there's this sort of graveyard for the old Vegas hotel signs. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a lot to do. Plus which, it's become one of the great gastronomic cities of the world. The, the restaurants in Vegas are extraordinary. So it, it was fun to hook up with him. I went out and visited with my son out in California, visited Cindy's yeah, parents up in Seattle. So I noticed from there's... your website that your son is now taller than you are. Yeah, he was taller than me when he was about six years old. <laughs> so he's, uh, yeah, he's uh, a, a big kid. He's become uh, 
a composer for film and television. Fantastic. He's, he's studying to do that. He now I don't know about football fans here. I know who they root for and all that, but whether it makes a difference after four years and getting his degree in music business from USC, he has transferred to film composition at UCLA. Uh oh. Yeah. <laughs> from a Trojan to a Bruin. Wow. Mm. That's like going from what from a Wolverine to a Spartan? It used to be like going from a giant to a Dodger. Still could be. Wow. Yeah. Golly. Well, you're back in the saddle again. I am. Actually, I've already conducted for two weeks. I was open the season in Lyon. Uh, first week, we did uh, a rare performance of John Cage's Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, the orchestral version, I might add, ah, mm-hmm. uh, for those unfamiliar with this piece. Yes. Is, uh, four Minutes and 33 Seconds of Silence but, in three but, movements. Well, but it, uh, yes, but the the whole point of that, though, since you brought it up, is is to be aware of that nothing is really completely silent, right? And it's obviously more of a philosophical piece yeah. than it is anything else. But the idea is that even in the quietest of circumstances, there's always something. And John Cage firmly believed that virtually all sound was music, whether it was the person coughing next to you. Today, he would say the cell phone going off or just the sound of the air conditioning, people breathing. But uh, it turned out to actually be much more dramatic than I expected. I'd never done it before. I did have the oboe player tune the orchestra (laughs) and then gave him a bow at the end. That was nice. But we also did a really fine Sacre de Printemps. And then last week, really one of the highlights of my musical career was a presentation of the Verdi Requiem with four soloists who were just incomparable. Mm. Horace was great, orchestra was into it, and I really must say I, I came off the podium uh, exhilarated. Well, it's a, it's a stunning piece of music, and uh, I see that it's on the list. We'll get to that yeah, in, in a moment. Yeah, because it's different here. Um, but you have a, a spectacular opening weekend coming up this uh, Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, it's too bad we couldn't find any big-name artists. Uh, too bad. Or composers. <laughs> yeah, well, all right. So we start uh, with our subscription concerts that are on Thursday and Friday night at 8 o'clock. Our soloist is the new mom, Hilary Hahn. She is a child who she's bringing with her. And she's playing the Beethoven Concerto, the Mount Everest of all violin concertos, I think. I've done it with her several times. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was the first piece we ever did together in Washington. And she's also my artist-in-residence in in Lyon, so she'll be coming to Lyon four times this season to play and participate in all kinds of things. And it's always very special to work with Hillary, she has a musical persona and intellect that is always searching, always curious to do new and different things. So I look forward very much to seeing her and and Zelda, her young daughter. Her name's Zelda? Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. So she'll be here with the Beethoven. We also have the start of what is a theme that runs through the season, not all the concerts, but many of them. And it's called Gershwin and His Children. This is children only in a figurative sense. 
because the subtitle is The Influence of the Popular Culture in the Concert Hall. So we have works primarily from the 20th and 21st century, which reflect other musical styles that were more current and popular during their time. The opening piece is the Candide Overture, so that makes sense. Follow that is Gershwin's string lullaby, which was his very first attempt at actually writing what we would call a serious piece of music. It was originally written for quartet. I made a string orchestra version out of it. But the big news is that we're giving the world premiere of a Spanish-based composer who lives just outside Barcelona. His name is Ferran Cruzchent. Now, a few years ago, we played a piece of his called Cyborg. We gave the American premiere of this. And what people took away from it was the moment when the orchestra all tapped their cell phones and these ringtones started to appear all <laughs> throughout the stage. Well, Cyborg was, of course, about a certain degree of, of artificial intelligence controlled by man. The new piece, Big Data, traces in a strange an exotic way, the methods of communication that have developed over many, many years. Ringtones again become a part of this, but in addition, we're doing things that imitate the sound of a dial-up modem, Morse code, <laughs> and eventually ending with a full reference to the song Daisy Bell. That may not be familiar to people in that title, but that is indeed the title of the song most of you know as A Bicycle Built for Two. Well, and what happened is that this was the first recording used when in 1961, I think, Bell Labs pioneered voice synthesis and they used this recording to do it. And in another purposeful way, what Mr. Crucian does is to have the orchestra sing this melody while the various ringtones are going on, and the audience joins in for just a little bit of it, and it winds down, which is a reference to Stanley Kubrick's 2001, when Hal yeah. finally expires. Does the audience have to come to rehearsal? For no, this? but we will rehearse them at the concert. They sing six bars. It's not too bad. Okay. Manageable. So that's uh, Thursday at 7.30 and uh, Friday night at 8 o'clock. Information on all the things we're talking about, well, for the most part, all the concert stuff anyway, you can find at dso.org. That's uh, ds, excuse me, dso.org. Now, uh, there already is a, is a pretty good weekend yeah. Uh, but that's not the end of the weekend. No, because we had nothing to do on Saturday. We decided to fill it up. And and who were you able to drag in for oh, that? Oh, what's his name? Uh, the Chinese pianist. The uh, piano player uh, yeah. uh, guy. Oh, Lang Lang, that's right. <laughs> yeah, Lang Lang. He'll be here to play the fourth piano concerto of Beethoven. And the first half will be devoted mostly to light Americana type works. That's a fantastic concerto, too. I, I don't think oh, it's it gets... wonderful. And I don't, I don't remember having done a Beethoven concerto with Lang Lang before, so I'm very excited to see what his approach is to this one virtuoso work, but also in many ways the most chamber music-like of the five concerti. 
Well, as as is true pretty much every season, the the year is just chock full of, of concerts. We won't be able to get to everything, but there are a number of... Well, I want to talk about next week, though. Uh, well, I'm, I'm not wrapping up. I, okay. But yes, <laughs> uh, absolutely. Next week, right after after Long Long, we bring in this other... Uh, this other guy, a small, small guy, Eric uh, Olson. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, why, why are all these pianists taller than me? It's not good. My son and now these pianists, it's terrible. <laughs> well, but they sit down and you stand on the podium. So That's true. It? I'm still sorted in there, though. It's, no. It doesn't work. <laughs> but the one next week, you know, every year I kind of have one program where I sort of just look and say, you know, just as a program, I love it because it encompasses so many different things and at the same time makes sense. Uh, this one follows our theme through the whole concert. And that theme being the Gershwin and his children one, we have the most recent piece on the program is the one that starts the program it's called bump by christopher rouse he wrote it for me oh probably 20 years ago and it's a kind of dance like uh rock influenced piece very loud <laughs> then garrick comes and he plays the copeland piano concerto real rarity very rarely is this piece heard and it's a great wonderful piece of music and garrick plays it just so well and this is Copeland's really his only foray into jazz idiom. He alluded to it in some of his other music, but this one actually has elements of real jazz going on. Uh, and he'll follow that with what would be the signature piece of the entire theme, and that's the Rhapsody in Blue. The Copeland is written two years after the Rhapsody, but the surprise is that after intermission, we're playing a jazz-inspired piece that was written two years before the Rhapsody in Blue, and that's Darius Mio's La Création du Monde, The Creation of the World, uh, where the saxophone replaces the viola in a small ensemble. It's just a, one, of my, was one of my favorite pieces when I was a kid. I love this. Some great riffs. Oh, that. it's fabulous. And then the ending, you wouldn't think this has any relation to do with the theme. That's the Pines of Rome. But in fact, it does, because the theme of Gershwin and his children embraces the idea of what is it within the popular culture that crossed over and became part of the concert hall. And in this case, it was the invention of the phonograph because Respighi was the first to use recorded sonorities, mm. the sound of the nightingale on a 78 that occurred just before the grand march of the Appian Way. Is there an official nightingale recording there is it's the one we still all use we just don't play it on a phonograph anymore we just press a button and the cd does it huh. and i'm i'm waiting it hasn't happened yet but i'm sure one day somebody's going to press the wrong button it's like a lion is going to come <laughs> out and then see something like that well that would certainly change the mood yeah yeah uh before we get on to some of the other things i just want to point out that in the space of one week if you're a piano fan, you'll be able to hear Long Long, Garrick Olson, and Chick Corea, uh, who does the Paradise Jazz Series on Friday, October 7th. Yeah, and interestingly enough, Long Long uh, has played with Chick Corea as a duo. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, that, that, would be, that would be a hot ticket, yeah. too. Um, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here to uh, an event I was very excited to see. Uh, when you guys went to Carnegie Hall with uh, Storm Large, uh, it was, we had a chance to see some of it here and, and, it, and it was just stunning. It was, yes. um, and, but we didn't play it on subscription. We put together concerts that were special events just as warm ups for the tour. 
So we thought it was appropriate, both for our theme, Hirschwin and his children, and for Storm to come back to reprise this, to give people the idea of what happened at Carnegie Hall, which was such a triumph for all of us. So she'll be back to give us Kurt Weill and all of his demented glory. She And, and I, she's such a unique and stunning talent. She uh, really is. Uh, it's, it's hard to know what direction her career will go in next. I can easily see her being in a television sitcom. She could be a Broadway star. She could continue cabaret work. She sings with Pink Martini. Uh, she's just bright, articulate, and a phenomenal singer. She'll uh, also be doing um, a date in the, the music box, or mm-hmm. the cube, as it's the cube. as we now call it. Uh, I mean, the you just call it the music cube. That the music be. cube? Oh. Could. Yeah. Well, you, you might want to bring that up. I might. At the next staff meeting. I might. Um, let's see. Moving, uh, moving along... Mozart uh, is an interesting subject for the festival. Uh, I mean, obviously, he's he's a worthy subject, but I, I thought it was interesting that two of the main threads in this season feature genius composers who were gone much too soon. Yes, yes. One day, of all of them, though, I think the the one we always forget about was Schubert. Uh, Mozart died when he was 35. Gershwin was, what, 38? Yeah. Uh, But Schubert was 31. Mm. And one day. uh, Our our previous festivals, which have been quite successful, featured all the symphonies of Beethoven, all the symphonies of Brahms, and all the numbered symphonies of Tchaikovsky. Well, we couldn't really get 41 Mozart symphonies in in the course of three weeks. (laughs) And you couldn't get yeah. the 27 piano concertos in. Yeah, <laughs> and even getting the seven violin concertos in didn't seem such a hot idea either. So what we decided on was to focus on the last six symphonies of Mozart, which are frequently done as a, a unit of some kind. But really unique is to play all of the concert works for solo wind instruments and orchestra. I mean, literally all of them. The four woodwind concertos, the four horn concertos, and a couple short pieces. We still had room left over to do the concertone for two violins and orchestra, and the great, to some people, is absolute masterpiece, the Sinfonia Concertante for violin and viola. Mm. Uh, And through all that, there are also a good handful of overtures. What makes the festival particularly intriguing is that all of the soloists are members of the DSO, including four of the horn players. This is remarkable. It's a, it's wonderful to be able to uh, feature these these great players in a in a solo role. And we can't reveal too much yet about what the well, it's we we don't know exactly what we do know what the mascot's going to be, but we're not going to tell you. <laughs> well, uh, it's good to have some suspense. There's going to be. Obviously, some Austrian um, delicacies, shall uh-huh. I, say, I suspect. It's going to be a, a, a pistachio chocolate covered. Uh, might be. Might be. Might um, be. I, I have no idea. I don't that's either. okay. I'll, we'll, we'll find out. Um, Terrence Blanchard's coming back with a, an original composition 
that in the last time I saw Terrence on the stage of Orchestra Hall, it, it, he just blew the lid off the place. He's just a, another tremendous uh, artist and he musician. Is. Last season we did his uh, tribute piece to the victims and the situation of Hurricane Katrina. And this one is the 9-11 piece, I think? No, this is the uh, 1967 Detroit Detroit riots. That's right. But, you know, again, I'm sure knowing Terrence, it'll be a really uh, spectacular display for himself and the musicians and Ultimately, very moving. That'll be in March. Yeah. Uh, and in case I missed it, the, the Mozart Festival is in February. Jan- no, it's in January. Uh, January, excuse me. Yeah, late January. Uh, and you can find out and double-check all this stuff at dso.org. Uh, get your tickets early because a lot of these will be sold out. Yeah, we're going to have a extraordinary advance sales and everything are really at an all-time high. People are excited by the year. Uh, the orchestra is really looking forward. There are a lot of specialties that I haven't had the chance to do with them yet, including the fact that I actually haven't done a lot of English music here since huh. before we came on. You did the second symphony of Vaughan Williams, given, but we're going to do the Walton first and the Elgar first this year. That's surprising, given your history yeah, I know, with. Uh, I know, but, uh, but with, English music just has not caught on in the states. It hasn't caught on in most of Europe either, but. Maybe this two pieces, <laughs> certainly Walden one is one of the Well, we're doing our stages. best here. We play a lot of uh, Walton and Elgar and, and others. Sharon Isbin stopping by in April. Yes, and this is another one of our theme pieces, she, although she's starting with a Vivaldi concerto. The lute concerto. The famous one. Yeah. And then a piece by Chris Brubeck, son of Dave Brubeck guitar and orchestra that she commissioned and it's very very fine piece not too long by 15 minutes uh dealing with elements of the popular culture as combined with uh concert language and i think isn't that the program we're doing Mahler 10 yes yeah so believe it or not this is the one Mahler symphony that has not ever been played by the dso nobody's ever done the 10th now the 10th is the one that he didn't finish he died couldn't finish it, but he'd left enough sketches for at least seven people to make different completions. Mm-hmm. Derek Cook, who did the first one, wound up doing three different versions of it, and I'll be doing, in this case, his third version, but I'll be amending some of it with some of my own thoughts based on the sketches that Mahler left down. Uh, it is... Almost, we're very close to calling this a repertoire piece now because it pops up quite frequently around the world and many conductors have taken it up. So it's not unlike, say, Turandot, Mm. which was completed by Franco Alfano in two different versions, and that's what we hear today. And it's obviously standard repertoire. So sometimes completions, or filling out in this case, are very valid. You just have to make up your mind about what you believe Mahler might have done. And there are a couple places where I'm adding a few of my own speculations. And that'll be in April. Yeah. And uh, as we began our our chat today, uh, you mentioned the Verdi Requiem 
And mm -hmm. in May, there's a very special yes. concert coming up. Now, the Verdi Requiem is one of the greatest of all choral works. One of the greatest works of Verdi. And one of the most beloved by the public. During the Second World War, at Theresienstadt, the concentration camp, one of the prisoners, Rudolf Schachter, was a chorus master. The Nazis had let him bring one vocal score of the Verdi Requiem into the camp. He went one prisoner at a time, teaching them, having them memorize the Requiem, mm. and would eventually present it at Theresienstadt several times. All this was discovered by a very good friend of mine named Murray Sidlin, a conductor and teacher. And he put together a presentation that's called The Defiant Requiem, which utilizes the forces that Schechter had, not quite as large as you usually have in a Verdi Requiem. At the concentration camp, it was just played on an out-of-tune piano. So there are moments when Murray uses a piano and then fades it into the orchestra and the chorus. He has a narrator reciting letters by concentration camp, both survivors and those who perished, and videos of a few people who are still with us talking about that. At the end of the, and, and he himself talks about the history of this, and they play the Requiem interspersed with the horrors of what was happening at the time and how this music kept the hopes and spirits of so many alive. And at the very end, after the Libarame, solo violinist remains on stage playing a Yiddish folk tune while everybody else on the stage departs and lights go out and we leave in silence. I've seen Murray do this on three occasions and it is one of the most moving and heartbreaking experiences you will ever have. I believe we play it twice in Orchestra Hall and once out at Sherry Zedek. That's right. May 4th at uh, Sherry Zedek and then uh, May 6th and 7th, that's a Saturday and Sunday, at uh, Orchestra Hall. But still, I would urge everybody to go because it's still the Verdi Requiem. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about that last week while I was conducting it, thinking about how much this music must have meant to those especially who did not expect to ever leave that horrible place. You can find out, again, information about all of these concerts and much, much more 
at the website dso.org. Or you can call the box office directly if, if you're still one of those folks that uses the telephone. Three one three, and that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. Three one three five seven six fifty one eleven. And finally, Leonard, before you go, I, I remember in two thousand eight when you came here, there was a lot of excitement. And um, at the first time I saw you in Orchestra Hall that year, you sat on the stage and you addressed the audience, and you said, "I get asked a question a lot." since I've come here, and I'm getting a little tired of it. And the question is, why did you go to Detroit? Do you remember? Oh, of course. And, and, and what was your answer? The answer was usually because, as a guest, I found fantastic people here. I saw a passion for culture and the arts, and I saw the arts as a way to help energize a city that was in very deep trouble. Now, I didn't have a crystal ball, of course not. And we went through horrendous times. But if I look back and say, now, did you accomplish what you wanted to in Detroit? I have two answers. The first one is no. Because when I arrived, I wasn't prepared for what would happen my third year. But the other answer is a resounding yes. Because what we have put together as a cultural institution, as a major force in the United States as an organization, organization now that is looked to, respected, and consulted when other orchestras are going through similar difficulties as their cities may be. The fact that we were able to not just survive, but become part of the leadership in the regeneration, the rebuilding regrowth of this city is something very few people can say. I can say it because I'm on the road a lot, which means that every time I return, I come back and see something different, something new, something that has not been here before. And there's that physical moment where you just go, oh, I haven't seen that before. When did that go up? When did this happen? And I realize that the orchestra and all of the people who work at Orchestra Hall have been part of that. And so, even though there's a long way to go for everybody, the goal that I eventually came to answered fully why Detroit. It was to help to rebuild, to leave something in better shape than it was when I arrived, and to come and make music in one of the greatest halls in the world with one of the greatest orchestras in the world. Leonard Slatkin, thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. <laughs>